FTI's Financial Services Podcast. FTI is a global advisory firm. We help organizations manage change, mitigate risk, and resolve disputes. I'm your host, Tilsia Toledo. I have over 25 years of experience in the financial services industry. This show is about the people I've met along the way and leading during uncertain times. You will hear from finance executives, law firm partners, dedicated government professionals, and many others. In today's episode, we're doing something a little different. I had the honor of speaking on a panel for the Corporate Council Women of Color Career Strategies Conference in 2022. The topic was digital assets and the regulatory landscape. Today, we're going to play the audio from that panel discussion. I am extremely grateful to Lori Robinson Hayden, who is the founder of Corporate Council Women of Color, for providing the audio. You will hear Stella Mendes, who is moderating the panel, as well as my co-panelists, Tiffany Smith and Irene Wong. Please enjoy. Hello, everyone. We have some great speakers here. I'm, I'm thrilled to be moderating. I was saying before that the challenge for today is going to be keeping it to an hour. These ladies can talk about digital assets probably for days on end, I'm sure. So my name is Stella Mendez and I'm with FTI Consulting. I'm happy to be moderating the panel today. Thank you all for joining us. I just want to say that one of the panelists that was supposed to join us today, Maria Early from Morrison Foster, unfortunately had an emergency and won't be with us today. But we have the rest of the uh, ladies here are phenomenal and you'll really appreciate what they have to say. Maybe you guys can just give a quick introduction. Tilsia, I'll start with you. Sure. Hi, everybody. My name is Tilsia Toledo. I'm a Senior Managing Director at FTI Consulting. And I have been focused in the financial services industry for over 25 years. I'm a former banker. I'm also a former FDIC regulator and consulting has been fascinating because you start really focusing on some of the traditional banks and then as the industry moves, you know, we've been doing a lot more work with money services businesses uh, and other non-traditional institutions that are in the financial services space. Tiffany? Hi everyone. My name is Tiffany Smith. I'm a partner at Wilmer Hale in the Securities and Financial Services Department. I'm also co-chair of the firm's cryptocurrency and blockchain working group. Historically, my practice has been focused on broker-dealer regulations, so all of the rules that govern the trading of securities and the intermediaries that trade them. And in the last four years, an increasing part of my practice has focused on digital assets and all things crypto. So a big part of my practice today focuses on cryptocurrency regulations. So I work with crypto exchanges, crypto other crypto intermediaries, NFT platforms, NFT issuers, and other tech providers in this space. So I'm excited to be here and talk about all of these very fascinating and quickly changing um, issues. Hermeen Wong with Coinbase. I am the director of the Coinbase Institute and director of policy over there. I've been there for about three years. And before that, I was at the SEC for six years, the classic administrative lawyer over there, OMB, small division of the White House, and then um, State Department before that. So at Coinbase, what I do is I, one, through the Coinbase Institute, try to accelerate research into the digital asset space. We'll talk a little bit more about the executive order reports that came out uh, in the last couple of months, but the research is very light when it comes to crypto because the technology is innovating so quickly. So we're trying to accelerate evidence-based research in the space, come to better public policy decisions. And then there is also the work that I do to just advocate for the Web3 and crypto space in general among the, for the ecosystem. So I think we'll jump right in and maybe we'll, we can start with, so what does the landscape look like? And maybe Tiffany, you can take us out on that. 
the industry, the ecosystem has grown tremendously. As of March, it was a $3 trillion industry. That's before we hit this crypto winter. So prices started to decrease a bit. So we're about at 1 trillion. The key figure, the key metric is that approximately 15% of Americans or 40 million people have used cryptocurrencies at some point. So that's a, that's really a tremendous amount of adoption. And if you think about for those who are crypto or Bitcoin purists, cryptocurrency started back in 2008 with Bitcoin. It was kind of like this anti-government search where these folks were upset with the financial crisis and the big banks being bailed out of the financial crisis. And they wanted an alternative form, an anti-government form of money where you didn't have central intermediaries. Fast forward to where we are now, we're at a point where you had at one point a $3 trillion market and it's very volatile and there's you know, costs and benefits to that. There's also a lot of innovation and a lot of new technology, a lot of new use cases. So we're at a place where you have something that was supposed to be outside of the financial system, right? And kind of like more of a niche type of store of value form of transferring money has now went to something that's more mainstream, has gotten significant adoption. And what you have, and what we're going to talk about is you have all the regulators in the White House trying to figure out how to protect consumers and how to really deal with this. So the technology is far, has far surpassed one, like what the regulation is and really in some respects, what regulators thought it was going to be. There's some fraud, there's some scams, there's other nefarious things that are happening with respect to crypto. But I think part of the work that Coinbase and other folks do is like, there's a lot of good use cases, a lot of value, a lot of opportunities here. So it's important to kind of have a balanced approach but that's where we are. The adoption is just tremendous. And that's why this room is filled. This is why there's two crypto panels, you know, at this conference. And that's, if you think about this four years ago, before the pandemic, this wouldn't be the case. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. And it's so fast moving that the regulators are definitely challenged with keeping up with the change and the issues. And so maybe we could talk about that a little bit. You know, what are some of the key agencies uh, involved in the regulation and enforcement? I know this, we're not going to cover all of them, but maybe and Tiffany, maybe I'll, I'll stick with you for that. So crypto, and when we say crypto, we're really referring to cryptocurrency. So like Bitcoin, Ether, there's a million other types of crypto products, like right? So Bitcoin and Ether are the most popular cryptocurrencies. There's really 10,000 different types of cryptocurrencies. You also have loans, like crypto loans. You have NFTs, so it's very broad. So with respect to cryptocurrencies, they're primarily regulated at the federal level by FinCEN and license at the state level as money transmitters or money services businesses. So FinCEN, that's the, the part of the treasury, they have more of a licensing, like more of a registration regime where you kind of fill an application, but the real um, licensing and, and overseeing supervision really happens at the state level as money transmitters. So all of the major crypto exchanges are registered as money transmitters. And that regime of money transmission, money services businesses, which really built for companies like Western Union, which if, if you think about it, is totally different from how crypto exchanges work. So at the federal level, there is no primary regulator for crypto generally. Caveat, very lawyerly as I say this. <laughs> so in the spot market, if you were to buy or sell a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin 
and you get delivery of it within 28 days. And we can talk about what that means because of course that make it complicated. In this spot market, there is no federal regulator. And so when you hear people say that there is like, there's a lack of regulation in, in crypto, that's what they're talking about. There's no primary federal regulator for cryptocurrency in the spot market. If the cryptocurrency transaction is a future or derivative, then it's regulated by the Commodities Futures Trading Commission, the CFTC. In the spot market, if you lie, still or cheat, right? Like anti-fraud, anti-manipulation, the CFTC can bring actions for those types of um, conduct in the spot market, but they don't have the ability to make rules just like a broker dealer or like a commodities entity. There's no standards of conduct, no capital rules, nothing of that nature. The more interesting thing that comes into play and where the SEC comes into play is if you have a cryptocurrency, a crypto asset, crypto product that is a security or is sold like a security, then the SEC has jurisdiction and is treated like any other type of security. It's a very like interesting question about when something is a security, but those are the primary regulators. So you have the primary regular right now, regulator right now is the states. There's the registration at the federal level with FinCEN and then you have the CFTC and SEC, depending on the nature of the product. I say nature, not, not name, because the names don't matter. You can call something a cryptocurrency, but if it's sold like a security, it's going to be treated like a security and then vice versa. You shouldn't call it a security, but like no matter what you call the product, what is key is how it's sold, what you're promising the investors, and the manner and the people involved, because that's going to determine the regulatory status of it. Tilsia, maybe you can talk a little more about other agencies and what their roles are. Here. Sure, and I think the part that makes this uh, area so fascinating is because it is still a fairly new asset class. And so what you're seeing is all the other various regulatory bodies, whether it's the states, whether it's the SEC, the CFTC, and, and many others, really looking to be engaged. You know, they're thinking about the safety and soundness of the financial systems. So while you would normally talk about SEC and CFTC in the states, you are seeing engagement from the DOJ. You're seeing engagement from FinCEN, as we mentioned earlier. You're also seeing engagement from, for example, the IRS in determining that if you file your taxes this year uh, and you had crypto and it gained in value, you would have had to file taxes, you know, in terms of what your holdings were in your wallet. And not only that, but also the CFPB. We talked about the fact that there are some concerns about the consumer and their protection. So you're seeing the CFPB also being engaged in this area, especially the White House executive order. They actually ended up going even broader in terms of uh, just wanting to hear and get papers from other regulatory agencies about how they're gonna deal with digital assets. And then the other item I was gonna mention, just as we delve a little bit more into what some of the regulators are doing, is that you're also seeing them staff up. So the DOJ has created the National Cryptocurrency Enforcement Team. And what they're doing is pulling from various different areas, whether it's the folks who are focused on the anti-money laundering aspects, the folks who are focused on cybersecurity. So they're pulling people who have specific skills to create this group to really look at the enforcement in the cryptocurrency space. And not only is the DOJ fairly active, but you're also seeing other, um, like whether it's the FBI as well, who also has formed their own unit the Virtual Asset Exploitation Unit. 
you know, each agency may look at it from a slightly different standpoint. So we know that the FBI has really focused on ransomware because you're seeing so many different cases where people are using cryptocurrency to go ahead and make payments. And so they're looking to see, okay, what are the skill sets that we need within this unit to be able to go ahead and address some of the concerns that whether it's companies or individuals have in the space. So with hearing all that and what the regulators are thinking about and kind of the risks that you just alluded to, what are some of the concerns that we're facing here in this space? One of the big concerns that you see people really emphasize is anti-money laundering. Because, you know, think about it. You have this asset, you know, you're able to do a lot of things in a very anonymous way. And so anti-money laundering risks are, are viewed as being very high. And it's an area where FinCET is really focused on. FinCET is able to deem you as a money transmitter, depending on how it is that you are transacting with the cryptocurrency. So that's an area of concern. So a lot of people who may think like, well, I'm not really, I don't really think of myself as a, as a financial institution. Well, it depends on what is it that you're doing and how is it that you're you know, using the currency. So there are various different regulations that will apply because for example, if you are considered money service businesses, then you have to abide by the Bank Secrecy Act and all of those other regulations that come into play. In addition to that, I mean, I think we're seeing action, right? So I talked about the fact that they're staffing up. So you're seeing various different enforcements that are already announced. So FinCET already announced a hundred million enforcement action against BitMEX because they were not registered and they saw that they were willfully violating some aspects related to Bank Secrecy Act. And they're not the only ones. And you're also seeing more and more regulators joining forces together to also go after folks who are not following the regulations. And you're also seeing more regulatory bodies, not just within the US, but joining forces internationally to go after people who are not behaving properly. And the other area is OFAC and sanctions. And you can imagine with everything that's happening right now with Russia and the sanctions, that there's a lot of focus on cryptocurrency being able to be used and being able to be moved to try to like get around some of the sanctions policies that the US has put forward. And one of the examples that I know that, you know, was recently mentioned is the Tornado Cash, which was just sanctioned by the OCC earlier this year in August because they had been used to launder more than $7 billion worth of virtual currency. And so you're starting to see all these various different cases come up and various different enforcement actions be rolled out. Thanks, Tilsia. And uh, maybe now for me, I'll kick it over to you. Uh, obviously, there we've talked about some of the risks here, but there are benefits, right? Because otherwise, why would this be so popular? So maybe you can talk about that a little bit. And I just want to put it in perspective of how we understand where we are on the adoption scale. If you go back to 1995, you guys may remember this video of Bill Gates struggling to explain the internet to Dave Letterman. And if you don't, I'm sure that you guys can see it at any time. But basically, it goes something like, Dave Letterman's like, there's this thing called the internet. Tell me what it's like. Why is it useful? And he's like, well, you could, you know, see the a baseball game live and know what's going on. And Dave Larson's like, has anyone heard of the radio? Bill Gates then says, okay, well, but you could do it whenever you want to. Dave Larson's like, has anyone heard of videotapes? And what's remarkable is that at that time, the statistic that Tiffany mentioned about 16% of Americans, it was done by Pew in 2021. In 1995, Pew did a survey about internet adoption, and it was 14% of Americans at that time. So the adoption curve is going to be very similar. The reality is that it was 
Bill Gates, one of the smartest men alive, had was struggling to explain to the mainstream population what the internet was going to be, and he didn't know. We couldn't have known, actually, right? So this is where we are right now when it comes to crypto, and I'll, you'll all hear me say the term Web3 a lot because Web3 is the utility of what we think this will do. So fundamentally, 2008, the Bitcoin white paper is published. How many here have read that Bitcoin white paper? Yeah, so I'm not going to say you have to read it. I've read it a bunch of times and I can't say that I understand it that much better. And I've read it a bunch of times only because it's very elegant, so like 16 pages. But I'm not going to say that you should read it. But I'll tell you that the core idea of what it's trying to articulate, much to what Tiffany said earlier again, is, is this idea that we see this financial crisis. There are ways of trying to, we'll call it decentralize this centralization of financial power by certain banking institutions and it was because a few of them held so much of the financial infrastructure that the failure of one sent ripple effects and a contagion throughout the market so what this could do this distributed ledger system that was proposed in the white paper would make it so that no one could ever be that big if you have pure adoption and the idea was that the reason why we have banks as intermediaries in the first place is, let's say, for example, I write a check to Tilsia. Now, someone needs to figure out, Tilsia, if she just wants to say, okay, Hermine gave me this money, she has to get it verified. And I have to also have that money that's available. So the banks have stood in place and it takes time to do that. You know, like even now with mobile deposit, you still like would scan it and it takes a couple days to show up in someone else's account and you mail it, that takes even longer. That's a fundamental problem it's, it's solving initially. And that's why, you know, when I talk about those technical benefits of crypto, this idea of instant settlement, transparency, disintermediation, immutability, which means you can't hack it, and decentralization, all of those are technical aspects of what we're trying to do. Now, having said that, that's why the particular regulators that everyone's listed are the regulators we're talking about, because it sounds very much like money, right? This all sounds kind of like money, and that's the core of where it came up. However, the actual utility isn't just going to be about money. Like again, if we think about 1995 and now, what we're going to see is an explosion of how this will get used. And we're seeing nascent ways in which this is happening. I've lifted a, f a few of those social benefits, but let's dive into how we think about NFTs. And this is top of mind for me. I'll, I'll share with you a few anecdotes about a Web3 in real life demo day that we did on the Hill with a bunch of different partners a couple weeks back to try to demonstrate this social utility aspect of crypto and what it's trying to achieve. So individual digital ownership, we think of that a lot with NFT space. And you guys have probably heard about how much the creator space is really hindered by a few big labels when it comes to music, when it comes to any sort of digital medium. You know, YouTube takes a cut, Spotify takes a cut. The creator of that ends up only seeing about 3% of the value. Everything else is taken by those intermediaries. What if there is a way, and there is now with NFTs, a way for the creator to get 97% of that value? Not only that, the creator has a better way of accessing their audience, right? This is no longer going to be promoted by the intermediary. On top of that, there's also the resale value. You can now, if someone else sells 
Beyonce's drop that I got and I sell it to someone else, Beyonce's still going to get a cut of that secondary sales, which doesn't happen right now. So that's one area of a use case we see. Some of the more fundamental ones that we're seeing, you could imagine a very common situation here in the United States, domestic violence victim. She's trying to flee her abuser. The abuser has control of her financial assets. She wants to open a bank account, they're gonna know. They have a freeze on her social security number. She has nowhere to go. She has to figure out, do I take my kids and start a new life with whatever I've got in cash, or do I risk you know, him finding me? And the reality is that now with crypto, what could be happening is that they, can, they don't need to go through a bank to open an account and get financial access. The same thing could be say, said in humanitarian crises where you can see that refugees fleeing a country, their money is devaluing at a crazy pace and they are trying to figure out, do I take the little money that's devaluing from my bank because they have imposed withdrawal restrictions because they don't want the money to devalue too quickly either, and then carry a bunch of cash on my body, which makes me a target, cross borders, my government's crumbling. I may not be able to open a bank account in this new place. I may not be able to, if I can't open a bank account, how am I going to get extra funds from like family and friends who might want to send something to me? Again, this is something that crypto can solve for and does solve for right now. We've seen the Ukrainian crisis itself. It also provides benefits for the humanitarian responders, right? You met Doctors Without Borders. They strap like $100,000 in U.S. cash on them to just do work to provide medical services because there's no other way to do it. But imagine having a crypto wallet and being able to have money instantly available without putting your life at jeopardy while you're providing these emergency services. So those are a few of these use cases that we're seeing that are frictions that exist in the current system that we're trying to solve for that the Web3 is trying to solve for. And you're going to see a lot more of these use cases develop in time. And you mentioned being on the Hill and presenting with partners. And we also talked at the beginning about the White House response. Maybe we could talk a little bit about that. What has been the response from Congress and the White House and also some other stakeholders that you've seen? And maybe you could start and Tilsia and Tiffany, you can you know, add to that. Yeah, what we've seen is that there's a crypto executive order that was issued in March by the Biden administration asking for 21 different reports from a whole host of agencies. Besides the ones that were named, you also have OSTP, the Office of Science and Technology Policy. You have the Department of Commerce. EPA was involved. There's a whole host of different agencies. The Fed is also producing something and asking about how should we identify risk? What are some of the benefits? And there's a big, big emphasis on CBDC, central bank digital currencies. The most famous one right now in the world is the one that's being issued by China because it's the most advanced. If you know anything about it, it's basically China's way of really drilling down on surveillance. But if they can become the de facto digital currency for cross-border transactions, they'll have a real world view into the entire global economy and what other countries are doing in flow. So by an executive order was very focused on what should we do about central bank digital currencies? And we've been seeing those reports come out. One theme that we've seen from these reports though is that while they are research light, lots of just anecdotes, but they are fairly consistent that new legislation must happen to adequately address this space. The current authorities that exist in the statutes just don't give anyone the right kind of regulatory authority. 
So we've seen a couple of different promising bills come through, one by Lummis and Gillibrand, another one by Stabenow and Bozeman, trying to clarify what is the tax treatment? How do you define a security? Who owns what part of this territory, CFTC or SEC? Again, in thinking about this 1995 versus 2022, the questions they're addressing are really fundamental. They probably won't be those same questions 10 years from now, just like porn is not the only thing we talk about when we talk about the internet anymore, but it was the only thing we ever talked about in 95. So I'll turn it over to the others for their thoughts. So I'll say that, I mean, one of the things that I find so fascinating about what we're seeing happening in Congress and with the White House executive order is that we're starting to have the conversations that we needed to have. For me, it's very clear that digital currency is here to stay. And while at one point, there were all these conversations about just ban the whole thing, right? And you, you would hear people say, just ban it. I think it's a recognition that you can't just ban it, that it's here to stay, that it's important for the U.S. to play a role. It's important to have intelligent conversations around what do we want the regulatory environment to look like. You have seen other bills that Darmeen mentioned. Uh, one of them I thought was fascinating was the Responsible Financial Innovation Act which was interesting because it was Loomis and Gillenbrad. And the interesting thing about that one is that you have, it's a bipartisan bill, which is always interesting to have, you know, out of Congress. And I happen to live in DC, so maybe it gets a little bit inside the beltway because we always track, okay, like who is sponsoring it? What party are they with? Which committee did they sit on? Did they head any of the committees? So we start having all those internal conversations around what do we think is the art of the possible, right? But at least they're starting to define terms and coming out with definitions and thinking about which agency would take the lead. For the loomis Gillenbrad bill, it was very clear that they were very differential to the CFTC, which was something that the SEC did not take lightly, but the jury's still out. It's a very, very hefty bill. And at the end of the day, there are all these conversations about maybe not the whole bill makes its way through, but maybe there are pieces, maybe there are ways to just kind of like strip it into some key components and have some of those components go through. And Tiffany, I'll, I'll turn it over to you. I mean, I have lots of opinions about these bills, so I won't say anything. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to talk about SEC stuff, but I mean, the key issue in all of this is whether or not the digital asset is a security. And these bills skirt around that issue. So that's the biggest issue I have with like all of these bills. And they're definitely progress towards the right direction. You can see in part because of the adoption I was talking about earlier, that's why you now have a plethora of bills instead of like one Republican senator in Wyoming. Like, right, you just, it's not just one person, it's now bipartisan. There's a lot more discussion and debate about crypto and its role in the whole financial system, which I think is like healthy and it's great. But we're still, as I'm going to talk about later, we're all kind of sidestepping around the critical issue about determining the status of the digital asset, which is like critically important for a host of different reasons. And, I'll, and one of the teasers is to make you stay is like, that's why Kim Kardashian got in trouble the other day. <laughs> Floyd Mayweather got in trouble before I think he settled, probably for like a little bit less, right? And right, so it yeah. seems to get like a bunch of people have gotten in trouble, but for the same thing, it all turns on it being a security. So finally, being a broker-dealer attorney has paid off. It's, it's only taken 14 years, but <laughs> yeah. But you made it. I made it. I made it, and now I, now I, can, now I can add value everywhere I go. <laughs> yeah, and it, and it takes a case like Kim Kardashian for people to be interested in it suddenly. That wouldn't normally be interested. Suddenly they're exactly. like, oh, wait, what is this about? Why? What did she do? What's exactly. wrong with it? 
So we've talked a little bit about how Congress and the White House have responded. So how are the regulators then, how are they responding to what Congress and the White House are saying? Maybe Tilsia, we'll start with you. I know we talked about the consumer protection. We know that's critically important in other aspects, but this has become one of them for sure. Yeah, and I think that when it comes to the CFPB, again, the focus, you know, will be on SEC and CFTC because what matters is, is it a security or not? But I think the reason why you're starting to hear more and more about the CFPB is because it is starting to impact individuals. And so, you know, naturally, the, the agency was created to really focus on consumers and their protection. And so anytime you start thinking about credit and how credit is being offered and how money's moving around, they're going to want to weigh in. And you're starting to see cases about whether the disclosures are done properly. Are they being deceptive in the disclosure set when they're trying to sell crypto assets? So you're starting to see the CFPB, you know, take a role there. A couple of recent matters that have sparked some concerns by state and federal regulators. Some of these are still working their way through the system, but you know we thought it was important to just highlight some of them because you're starting to see more and more complaints that are being raised to the CFPB, and they've come out with some guidance, but I think that we can expect for not just the CFPB, but some of the other regulators to think about how they want to weigh in and what role they want to play in this space. Tiffany, you mentioned this, the SEC a few minutes ago. Maybe you can give us a little bit of insight into that. And I know you don't want to say anything, but you're going to have to. <laughs> <laughs> Happy to talk about the SEC. The SEC, Securities and Exchange Commission, they have authority to regulate securities. And as, as I was alluding to a couple of minutes ago, the key issue with digital assets are whether or not they're securities. And what's essentially has happened is you've had the Commodities Futures Trading Commission basically declare that two digital assets, Ether and Bitcoin, are commodities, and they have a whole body of rules talking about virtual currencies and when they have regulatory authority or when they only have anti-manipulation authority, which happens in the spot market. The SEC, on the other hand, has basically said that if an asset, regardless of what it's called, whether it's called a token, a coin, an NFT, it doesn't matter what it's called. Like you have to look at the nature of it. And if it satisfies the definition of security as defined in the Securities Act of 1933, it is a security and must be treated as one. So in order to determine whether or not something is a security, there's a laundry list of different types of assets that are security. Stocks, shares, etc. The one that's used the most with respect to crypto assets, it's called the investment contract test. That comes from a 1964 case called Howey, the U.S. v. Howey. And it sets forth a four-part test, an investment of money and a common enterprise with the expectation of profits derived from the efforts of others. If you meet that test, you are a security. As you can imagine, going through that test and applying it isn't the easiest, right? And you might come to a determination that might be different from a regulator. So there's risk there. But the key thing is that if something is a security, that means it must be registered as a security under Section 5, Step 1. If you, if you ever uh, purchase a security and get a prospectus, that's part of the registration regime. So you need to either need to register or comply with an exemption. The other parts that are related to that is that once something is a security, it must be sold by intermediaries that are licensed to sell or offer securities. That's where you have broker-dealers. That's where you have exchanges come into play. 
so it all stems on the status of the asset. Other rules also come into play if the asset is a security. So when we were joking about the Kim Kardashian case, what it really was was that the SEC determined that the asset that she promoted on her page was a security. If you promote a security, you must disclose very specific things about the promotion of that security. And you can't say hashtag ad. That's not sufficient for the federal securities laws. So what happens is that like, that determination of whether or not something is security, which as I described, can be subjective, like, right, and can be subject to second guessing, really determines like a million one after effects. And so we have an, a current administration right now where the SEC chair has said that he thinks most digital assets are securities. Besides the actual digital assets, there's over 10,000 of them. You have products like we were talking about Voyager and Celsius. Those were crypto lending products also securities likely. You have crypto staking products, you have loans, you have all these different types of crypto products that the SEC views as being securities. So you're probably saying, okay, you said a lot of things are securities. What is not a security? Good question. Officials at the SEC have only said that two assets are not securities, Bitcoin and Ether. And now the status of Ether is unclear because it just went through this whole transformative process. So that means that everything else is in risk of being deemed a security. I'm gonna say one last thing before I hand it over. The SEC has been subject to a lot of dissents and a lot of folks being upset with them because they would make broad statements about digital assets being securities, particularly where they're coming after intermediaries without describing in particular which assets they thought were investment contracts and therefore securities. So an example, this happened last year in a case against this exchange called Poloniox. They said Poloniox failed to register as an exchange because it sold digital assets that were securities. They failed to identify which digital assets were securities for a number of cases over the last year and a half. This changed a couple of months ago when they brought a case against a product manager of Coinbase called SEC Vivahi. The case is not against Coinbase, it's against their former employee. In that case, they describe nine digital assets that they thought at the time were securities and describe their Howey analysis. That debate about whether or not it should have been brought against someone who probably doesn't have the resources or really the desire to fight the categorization of those assets, that actually set forth their view with respect to nine assets. So that's kind of transformational in the fact that for the first time in a very long time, in a matter against an exchange or related to an exchange, you have their Howey analysis of how they think of digital assets. And so maybe we could talk a little bit about the CFTC and how they're responding to that space. The CFTC, it's like the way it's working, they were the first rural regulator at a federal level in this space. And what I mean by that is they really embraced the technology underlying crypto. They had a CFTC lab and they approved a, a Bitcoin futures ETF. And so they came out years ago with virtual currency guidance and really um, trying to be the lead regulator here that some of that power has kind of been grabbed away by the SEC lately. But I think when talking about the CFTC, the important thing to remember is that they only have jurisdiction with respect to the futures market. And for the futures market, how that comes into play and how we see that with respect to crypto a lot of the time is that the crypto isn't delivered within 28 days. There's guidance that talks about what a good delivery is, which means the transaction is not in the spot market. So you have 
crypto exchanges inadvertently selling futures and getting in trouble for that. And they also have anti-fraud, anti-manipulation authority, but they don't have the authority to make rules for the crypto spot market. And some of the bills that we were talking about earlier, it would have the CFTC have the primary jurisdiction of the spot market. But again, the key question is, which assets are we going to leave for them to regulate if we claim everything is a security? And before we move on, have you talked to Kim Kardashian about being her counsel? Yeah, she's, she's not taking my calls anymore. No? You know? <laughs> Probably because I didn't get her off. No, I'm kidding. I wasn't representing her. Hey, so um, can I um, add a few thoughts yeah, on this? Yeah, of course. So I'll be the Kool-Aid drinker of this panel when it comes to crypto. And I'll tell you the perspective of how some people in the community perceive this problematic regulatory structure right now is on the one hand this sec cftc turf battle is somewhat unique to the united states it is not true in other countries what in other countries you'll see is that you'll have just one financial regulator this is something that the united states has not solved for they left it in place here in the united states even after the dodd frank act where they had the opportunity to consolidate the sec and cftc and chose not to it's worth remembering that, you know, if we think about what the CFTC and the SEC were designed to do in the first place, and this is like a big rub for the community, is CFTC, we should think about this as like, you know, pork bellies, weeds, frozen orange juice concentrate, that's their bread and butter. And, you know, if you go to the members of Congress on the Ag Committee who oversee the CFTC, you'll see that they still have, you know, like widgets that tell them about the pork bellies and the frozen orange juice and the wheat contracts. At the SEC, this is from, you know, let's go back to the 1930s, the 1933 Act, 34 Act, those were in response to the Great Depression, where you did have a bunch of hearsay type endeavors where someone's like, oh, I've got a great scheme, like you should invest a bunch of money, and it turned out that there wasn't anything. So they created this registration disclosure regime. This registration disclosure regime is really robust now, but at its core, it, the idea is like, look, everyone needs to have a way to compare apples to apples that's verified about all these enterprises. The common investor needs that information in order to make a good choice about what they're investing in. So here's the rub for the community. Tiffany had laid out this management efforts of others, expectation of profit. If you're thinking about Bitcoin and ETH, fundamentally, there is no management team. There's a protocol that has actually done away with a lot of the intermediary base, this trust that you needed for broker dealers, transfer agents, clearing agencies, all of those that got baked in into this disclosure regime to make sure, you know, audited financial statements. Imagine trying to audit code. Whose financial statements are you going to get? What are the assets and liabilities? Those are the things that are getting disclosed and they just don't apply here. And then when it comes to the CFTC, why is the CFTC the one to regulate the space when if you think about Bitcoin and ETH as a commodity, the comparable kind of commodities there might be baseball cards, foreign exchange spot market that you go to the airport kiosk for. So CFTC isn't regulating those spaces. So is this the right place to be regulating? Is that the right agency if the activity fundamentally is not the activity that these agencies were designed to do and crafted decades of rules to accommodate for not this technology, but for a fundamentally different kind of problem? So that's the rub that 
the crypto community has when they say like, let's just apply the same rules to this asset class. Fundamentally, this asset class was designed so that the frictions that those agencies were put in place to govern, those frictions don't exist. And the one thing I'll add to that, because I mean, I think we can spend a lot of time talking about the SEC versus the CFTC, and, and it is a fascinating kind of situation. But the one thing that I think is important to also highlight as we think about this is that a lot of the companies who are operating in the space, they're really more of a money services business. So they are really truly initially regulated at the state level first. And so thinking about what that is like, you know, you're thinking not just about the federal enforcement that may take place, but you're also thinking about the 50 states and what are they looking at and, and recognizing that if you're in New York, DFS has been very clear in terms of like what their expectations are. While some other states may not be as clear, maybe still be formulating how they want to address this area. But a lot of the businesses that are operating in the space really start out as money services businesses. And, and that's something to just keep in mind as well. Yeah, and I think to your point, you know, the New York Department of DFS has said, we embrace this. We want you to be here in New York. We just want you to do it the right way. So I think that they have said they want to be collaborative in figuring out the right way to, to regulate this. But to Hermine, your point, this is a U.S. problem where it's, you know, and we've seen that in before, right? Even in bank secrecy and AML, you often have, you know, the OCC differs from the DFS or differs from the Fed. Sometimes that happens. And so figuring out how to manage those different stakeholders can be a challenge, which uh, what are three things, maybe Tilsi, I'll start with you. What are the things that you think institutions should be considering when they get into this space? Just from the conversation that we've had, it is a very complex area. It's a new area. So I'm always thinking about being mindful of the current environment. There's a lot of regulation that's still at play. There's a lot that's still being determined. So you're really operating in an area where there's a lot of uncertainty. I also always say, make sure that you reach out to folks who are experts, right? And folks who are dealing with this on a, on a regular basis, whether it's a consultant, law firm, other folks, I think it's really important to just reach out and make sure that you really understand what is it that applies to you? Because I know even in our work every day, you know, Stella, sometimes we'll run across a company who doesn't even recognize that they're going to be held to the BSA AML standard. Mm -hmm. They'll walk in and say, wait a minute, uh, so I need to set up a compliance program? It's like, yes, you do. So it's the whole recognition that you're now entering into a field that you maybe you didn't have visibility into before. And then I always kind of like think about like, what are the fundamentals? What are the basic things that you need to kind of like be mindful of? Whether it's making sure that you have your data in place, just thinking about what organizational structure do you want to have in place? It's a little bit different for established financial institutions because there's language that the regulators are used to talking about, whether it's like three lines of defense, like that's something that's just very common. But if I'm talking to somebody who is more in the startup, they have no idea what three lines of defense is. And, you know, and we're going through the whole educational process of like, okay, here's how you need to think about it. Because the fourth line of defense can be the regulator and you don't want that. <laughs> so we often spend quite a bit of time just kind of like thinking about what are the fundamentals and what do you really need to get in place right now. And there are also several steps that you need to go through just to even start to get your uh, transmitter licenses, you know, as well. I agree with everything that Tilsia said. I think I would just expand upon the importance of hiring experts. So we have this new technology with all of these like innovative, very cool, splashy names. And it's important to look behind the technology and really figure out what it is and what it's trying to emulate. So if you have a product, and it sounds like a bank account, 
just because you throw some crypto attributes to it doesn't mean that you're going to get away with not having it regulated. So it's really that type of thinking to figure out what regulatory regime you might fall under. And if there is a gap, meaning there isn't regulations that directly apply to what you're doing, think about what voluntary policies, procedures, or processes you can adopt to foster uh, financial protection and consumer protection. And that's a lot of the things that the crypto exchanges did. They voluntarily understood that the money transmission regime wasn't quite a great fit for what they're doing. And so they voluntarily adopted policies, procedures to like look after manipulative trading and things that like typical securities exchanges have. So that's the thought one. Thought two is this whole discussion and everything we're talking about today and getting Ermin's perspective versus like marrying that with what you hear in the news to like what we see as folks who have clients in this area. Advocacy is like, it's critically important because as Armin was talking about like, yeah, we have cryptocurrencies, but they're the underpinning of Web3, which is way bigger than cryptocurrency. And I actually had a debate with like a bunch of folks, like at this dinner I went to last week, and it was like, is it the industry's fault for weighing too heavily on the financial parts of crypto? And, and maybe it is, but it's not just about Bitcoin, Ether, and all the other cryptocurrencies. It's really about Web3. And it's critically important to have not the liars, thieves, and cheaters, like at the forefront getting in trouble for like their different schemes, but actually having people who are good players talking to regulators, telling them about the promise and the potentials of the technology so that the US can continue to be a leader and we continue to have opportunities. And we touched upon this a little bit, but there really are opportunities in this ecosystem for people of color. So it's important that we continue to foster it here and not let a scam or other nefarious uses of crypto narrate the story and all of like the use cases and the viability here. That's so true and I'm sure you have something to add, but I just wanted to circle back on something Tiffany said. Do your due diligence on who your expert is. There's a lot of people who really like this space and like to play in this space. It's interesting and I think Tiffany used the word dallying. That's not who you want to help you. You want to have someone who really understands this space and can help you through understanding where you are, where you're going, what you're doing. So do your due diligence and make sure that you're not gonna find someone who's got 30 years of crypto experience, but you are gonna find someone who is really become an expert in that space or digital assets in general. So that's a cautionary tale. We've seen that happen with some of the clients that we worked with. They've kind of gone to supposed experts in that they ended up getting themselves in a lot more hot water than if they had used no one, to be honest. So it's important that you have people that that know the space well. And Hermine, I, you mentioned a while ago, you pay lots of money to get good legal opinions, but you do that for a reason, right? Because you want to be sure that you're thinking about it the right way. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. So Coinbase does spend a lot of money. Tiffany mentioned some of the policies and procedures. One of the things that Coinbase stood up was the Crypto Ratings Council. The Crypto Ratings Council is like the Motion Picture Association, but for crypto trying to determine whether or not something's a security because the SEC hasn't done it. And so there's a 40-part test that we created uh, with a bunch of other members of this industry and everyone runs through this test and then it gets weighted and we try to figure out you know if it's like a one or five and that will help us figure out like how much of a security or security-ness of a product <laughs> there is you know for every single one of those assets on Coinbase, Tiffany mentioned that there's like you know coin market cap would say that there's about 20,000 cryptocurrencies right now 
Coinbase lists 150, 160 for retail users. So it's a small drop in the bucket, but every single one of those has gone through this rigorous review of this security test of this, and then a separate one for compliance, and then a separate one for cybersecurity. Most assets get rejected from being listed on Coinbase. So just as important as vetting the specialists is also just vetting the players that you're involved with. There is a huge demand for people like us to learn a lot more about this space, to become experts, because unlocking Web3 will require that kind of devoted expertise to solving those problems, right? Solving Web3 problems, but in order to get to those Web3 problems, to make sure that we can get to those use cases, this plumbing stuff needs to get resolved. Like we've, no, we've got to resolve it. We've got to show a lot of good faith effort. A ton of people need to be influencing policymakers. Like we're trying, we are doing our best. We're spending millions of dollars trying to get this right. We still don't know if it's right. Hours of time. Let's move the laws to make it so that this can become a space that's competitive, that's not just going to be drowned out through regulations that don't match the actual risk. Thank you all three of you for all of your insight today. Thank you all for joining today. It was a really good conversation. Thank you to the panelists for all of your work. Appreciate it. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please email financeandleadership at fticonsulting.com.